Hello there. Today is the last instalment of our series of talks on the book of Acts. Last week we saw the successful completion of Paul and Barnabas' first big missionary journey. We saw the gospel go out, no longer just in Jerusalem, no longer just in Judea and Samaria, but now the message about the risen Lord Jesus has gone out all around the Mediterranean region. Churches have been established Leaders have been appointed and Paul and Barnabas at the end returned to their sending church in Antioch. It says at the end of the last chapter, they reported all that God had done through them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. The multicultural church in Antioch would have had a joyful celebration that in other places, people from all different kinds of backgrounds had turned to the living God and his son, Jesus Christ. But then came the party poopers. You're probably familiar with party poopers. It can come up in all sorts of situations. Maybe you've just finished building a fabulous cubby house in your backyard and the neighbour looks over and says, you'll need council approval for that. Or at work, you've just come up with this great strategy for motivating your team and you've put it in place, but then your boss says you'll need to get HR to sign off on that. Or maybe you're putting on some exciting thing at church and the assistant minister comes up and says, you'll need to follow the COVID safety plan. See, party poopers come up in all sorts of different circumstances. In Acts Acts chapter 15, the party poopers have come from the church in Judea. And they come from Jerusalem and they say to the Gentile Christians in Antioch, "You, you know... Unless you're circumcised, according to the custom of Moses, you can't be saved. And the implication is all those Gentile people in Cyprus and Iconium and Lystra and round the place who've recently put their trust in Jesus, that's all well and good. But if they want to be truly part of God's people, if they want to be actually saved from God's judgment in the end, they're going to need to adopt the customs and basically become Jewish. That was the claim. And it led to some sharp dispute and debate at Antioch. And after a while, Paul and Barnabas get appointed, along with some others, to go up to the mother church in Jerusalem, meet with the apostles and elders, and get this all sorted out. In the last few chapters of Acts, we've seen Paul and Barnabas on a few journeys... Their first one was when they were sent out from Antioch on a mission to deliver famine relief to Jerusalem. The second one was their big mission around the place, the Mediterranean, delivering the gospel of Jesus. And now here's their third one, a mission to Jerusalem to sort out a theological controversy. In verse 4, we see them arrive in the big city. And they're welcomed. They tell about everything that God has been doing through them. And then we find out the origin of the party poopers. Verse 5 says, Some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, The Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. Now there's some good news and some bad news here. The good news is that some of the Pharisees, who were largely opposed to Jesus and helped have him put to death, Some of those Pharisees have now become believers in the risen Jesus. That's the good news. 
But the bad news is that they've brought some of their Pharisee ideas over into the church. Pharisees were lovers of the Old Testament law. They wanted all of Israel to take it more seriously and apply it more rigorously. And so for them, the idea that anyone can be vindicated on Judgment Day without following the law, that was just unimaginable to them. Their perspective was kind of understandable given their background. It needed to be answered properly. And so in verse 6, the apostles and the elders met to consider this question. There's much discussion to and fro, but the issue ends up getting solved in three steps. Here they are. Step number one is the apostle Peter gets up to speak. Peter is one of the 12 who were with Jesus from the beginning. Everyone recognises him as a key figure in the Christian movement. And Peter reminds the group that he himself had received a direct instruction from God on the Gentile question. You might remember back at the beginning of this sermon series, Peter's encounter with Cornelius. Cornelius was a Roman centurion, therefore a Gentile. And you might remember Peter's vision where God showed him this collection of all these unclean animals and told him to eat them. And then God used that vision to tell Peter to go ahead and enter into Cornelius' house, even though he's a Gentile, and meet with him and eat with him and tell him about Jesus. And that was an uncomfortable crossing of boundaries for Peter, but he did it. And Cornelius believed. And Peter saw in Cornelius the visible evidence of the Holy Spirit being poured out on Cornelius and his household. That was back in chapter 10. Here in the meeting, Peter stands up and reminds the gathered leaders about that incident. And he concludes in verse 8, God who knows the heart showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them for he purified their hearts by faith. That word purified is important. One of the main functions of the Old Testament law was to purify God's people, to keep them distinct and separate and holy, untainted by the world, so they could be the people of the holy God. But now Peter is saying, I can now actually see it's faith in Jesus that truly purifies someone. And Peter concludes in verse 11, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved, just as they are. Notice here that Peter's not just making a point about how Gentile people can be saved from God's judgment. He's also making a claim about how Jewish people can be saved from God's judgment. Only through the grace, the generosity, the gift of the Lord Jesus. It's faith in him that purifies Gentile and Jew alike. So Peter says his bit, and that's step one. And in verse 12, we see step two. Paul and Barnabas get up and they say a bit more about the signs and wonders that God has done among the Gentiles through them. They might have talked about that lame man in Lystra who'd believed the message and then been healed of his lameness in Jesus' name. Their logic was, if those people can't be saved without adopting the law, then how come God's already been doing the signs of salvation in them? That was step two. 
So we've had two steps. We've had Peter talking about direct revelation and the gift of the Spirit. We've had Barnabas and Paul talking about miracles that God has done. And those arguments are valuable, but they might not have convinced the Pharisee background believers. But then we get to step three. Look at verse 13. James stands up. This is probably the James who was the brother of Jesus. Before Jesus died and rose, James had been a skeptic, but now he's become a believer and he's become an influential church leader in Jerusalem. James stands up and says, you heard what Peter said, and you know what? The scriptures are in complete agreement with this. Now we know the Pharisees were devoted to the Old Testament scriptures, and so this argument is going to get their attention. James quotes here from the prophet Amos, a passage from Amos where God promises to restore the Israelite monarchy. And everyone in the meeting would have agreed that God has now done this by installing King Jesus to rule forever. But look then at verse 17. God says through Amos that this is so the rest of mankind may seek the Lord even all the Gentiles who bear my name. In ancient Jewish ways of thinking, the idea of Gentiles who bear the Lord's name was simply absurd. It's like talking about a Microsoft product that bears the name of Steve Jobs or an iPhone that bears the name of Nokia. Just nonsense. To them, it was the people of Israel who bore the name of the Lord. And all the Gentiles, those other nations, they were unclean outsiders. And yet, the promise was there in Amos, that there would be Gentiles who bear my name. And now Jesus has become king, it's all happening. Now Jesus is king, that prophecy that we read today in Isaiah 49 has come to fruition where God says to his people, I will make you a light for the Gentiles so that my salvation may reach the ends of the earth. Israel's own prophets had foretold that in the end, salvation wouldn't be restricted to the nation of Israel. People wouldn't need to come in and join this people group and adopt all their distinctive practices to be right with God. No, the prophets had foretold that in the end, salvation would bubble out from Israel to the whole world. They predicted there would be Gentiles who bear the Lord's name while still remaining Gentiles. And now Jesus is king. That salvation is overflowing to the ends of the earth. I want to stop here and consider ourselves for a moment. I haven't heard anyone at All Saints say, You need to follow the law of Moses to be saved. Snip, snip. But it's worth asking ourselves if we ever do a similar thing and draw our own borders for God's salvation. Those Pharisee background Christians, they were holding on to their existing boundary markers. They had a pre-existing concept of who should be in and who should be out. And they imported those boundaries into Christianity. They were thinking, if those folks want to be God's people, they'll have to get within my boundaries. 
It made Christianity less scandalous and more comfortable for them. Do we ever do that? Do we make Christianity less scandalous and more comfortable by drawing our own borders? In the way we think, in the way we run our church, in the way we speak to outsiders, we need to guard against seeing Christianity as a thing just for people like us. People who speak our language, people who share our ethnicity or culture, people who have our level of education, our standards of polite behaviour, our level of personal hygiene. If we draw any boundaries apart from faith in Jesus, we are at odds with the gospel. It's because of the Jerusalem Council here in Acts 15 that Christianity kept on becoming a worldwide movement rather than just a little sect within Judaism. And we need to make sure that we don't make Christianity a sect within middle-class Australian suburbia. Let's come back to the passage. James, as the senior figure in the meeting, has made the final call. In verse 19, he determines that they won't make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Those Gentiles don't have to become Jewish and adopt Jewish customs. End of story. Except, then we read verse 20. And it comes as a bit of a shock to us as readers. James says, we should write to them, these Gentiles who've turned to God, telling them, telling them what? We expect it to say, telling them that they're free to do what they want. Laws, don't worry about laws. Go with the flow, trust Jesus, and everything will be fine. That's what we expect. But here out of the blue, James wants to tell them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. And his reason is that the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times, and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. Comes as a surprise, doesn't it? But what's happened here is we've moved on to a new question. The original question was, what do you need to be saved? And James agrees with what Peter said earlier, faith in Jesus is what purifies you. It's through the grace of the Lord Jesus that we are saved. Jesus is all you need. That question is resolved. But now there's a new question. It's the question of how should God's saved people behave? How can God's saved people bear witness to the rest of the world? How can God's saved people get on with each other? It's an interesting list of things that the Gentile believers are told to avoid. On the one hand, we have the question of uh, mention of sexual immorality. And that's something that the whole Testament, whole New Testament repeatedly calls for Christians to avoid. Plenty of passages affirm that sex is for marriage between a man and a woman. Plenty of passages call Christians to turn away from sex before marriage, sex outside your marriage, and also from images and thoughts that lead in that direction. So it's no surprise that they're called to sexual purity. That's a call to us also. But there, jumbled in the same list, is a call to avoid food that's been offered to idols, 
the meat of strangled animals and from blood. And that sounds like the kinds of things that the Old Testament laws were concerned with. Is James really sneaking in a few of those food laws after all? This doesn't fit with the rest of the New Testament. What I think is going on here is that this cluster of things to avoid represents a picture of what went on in pagan temples. Pagan worship included, at various times, drinking blood, strangled meat, making offerings to idols, and religious sex. This instruction is saying to the new Christians, you don't have to adopt all the markers of Judaism, but you do need to turn away from the markers of paganism. Partly so that your Jewish Christian brothers and sisters can get along with you, but also because of unbelievers. The Jewish law is well known all around the place. If we're proclaiming Christianity as the fulfilment of Judaism, then we can't be known for things that are the opposite of Judaism. Let's turn to ourselves again at this point. This is not about whether or not you eat rare steak, okay? But it's about the relationship between liberty and love. The conclusion James reaches and sends in a letter to Antioch is that the believers are at liberty when it comes to the Old Testament law. They don't need to adopt all those customs to be saved. But he urges them within the context of that liberty to act in love. We see the same sort of ideas coming through in places like Romans 14 and 1 Corinthians 8 and 9. There are plenty of points in the Christian life where loving our brothers and sisters and loving outsiders means not taking advantage of every one of our freedoms. When it comes to decisions about what we might eat and drink, decisions about what we wear, decisions about the way we speak, the words we use, there are points where we might be convinced we have freedom, but we'll choose to restrain ourselves for the sake of others, to avoid unnecessary offence that might stop people listening to the gospel, or unnecessary offence that might cause divisions within the church. And of course our model for this is Jesus himself. Jesus had all the freedom there is. He was in very nature God. He could do whatever he wanted. But instead of using that freedom for his own advantage, he took the form of a servant. He made himself nothing. He became as unfree as you can be so we can be saved. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we ask your forgiveness for the times when we have drawn our own boundaries. And we ask that you'll help us always to turn away from drawing our own lines about who's in and who's out. We ask you'd make us welcoming people, a welcoming church. And we ask that you'd make us people who are willing to follow your lead, not claiming our rights but serving others in love. Amen.